0: These are the sounds of hundreds of protesters marching in the streets of Atlanta last Saturday.
1: Stop aching H-U-H. Stop aching H-U-H.
0: Together with demonstrators in cities around the country, they voiced their pain, their fear, and their anger after a killing spree at massage parlors in greater Atlanta left eight people dead, six of them, Women of Asian descent. Earlier in the week, President Biden spoke out about the massacre, linking it to the rise in hate crimes against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders over the past year.
1: Hate and violence often hide in plain sight. It's often met with silence. That's been true throughout our history. But that has to change because our silence is complicity. We cannot be complicit. We have to speak out. We have to act.
0: I'm Robert Armengol, the producer of Democracy in Danger. Like many of you, we were shocked and horrified by this news. So we decided to break with our scheduled programming this time to bring you an interview we posted last season about xenophobia in America. Our guest on that show, historian Erica Lee, testified before Congress in the wake of the shootings in Georgia.
2: During this past year, some of our highest elected officials deliberately and consistently used racist language tying COVID-19 to Asians. These words matter, especially when they repeatedly came from the White House during the previous administration.
0: This problem of hatred and violence against people of different nationalities and different races and ethnicities goes back decades and generations in this country.
2: This history of racism is not taught in our schools.
0: We know this show can't do much to alleviate anyone's pain or even to change hearts and minds. But we do hope Lee's research and insights can help delineate the scope of the issue and the threat it poses to the functioning of American democracy. Hello, I'm Will Hitchcock
1: and I'm Siva Vadianathan.
3: And from the University of Virginia's Deliberative Media Lab, this is Democracy in Danger, a series about the threats that democracy is facing in the United States and around the world.
1: We want to start today with a story that historian Erica Lee told us recently about a day trip that she took across the New York Harbor a few years back.
2: So I was on this trip to Ellis Island, I wanted to see some of the new exhibits focusing on post-1965 immigration. So I'm really there as a tourist. But of course, as an immigration scholar, I'm looking at everything with a critical eye, including the security line uh, to get onto the boat and the people around me and the narration.
3: During the peak immigration years, through the speakers as we're
2: traveling, you know, first to the Statue of Liberty and then to Ellis Island. And I'm listening to this, you know, very calm, professional uh, voice of the narrator and dulcet tones. Um, I think there's even a musical, you know, background.
3: Many organizations started programs to help. You know, speaking
2: Sometimes about right here, Ellis, Ellis Island as America's symbol of our welcome to immigrants. And, you know, it's such a wonderful story. remembers
0: how important it was to his father. My father would go to work at six in the evening, and he'd work all night.
2: You almost feel like standing up and... and- you know, putting your your hand on your chest. You know, you feel so patriotic um, listening to to that story. But he was
0: anxious, and he learned how to sign this name, and he was very proud of it.
2: He <laughs> said,
0: "I'm an American."
2: But I feel so divided, and and just just at a just discombobulated because. As I am waiting in line to get onto that boat, I'm listening to the news, and it happens to be uh, the weekend of the Republican Republican National Convention.
3: Convention. From the Quicken Loans Arena in Cleveland, Ohio. And,
2: uh, you know, the the news, newscasters are replaying speeches by Rudy Giuliani.
1: Hillary Clinton is for
2: open, Borders by Jeff Sessions. Um,
1: Excess immigration floods the labor market, reducing job prospects.
2: Of course, by candidate Trump and
1: nearly 180,000 illegal immigrants with
2: criminal. Record. And then the crowd's response: you know, build the wall, build the wall. And. I am just trying to you know, figure out how do these two Americas fit together, these two extremes? How do we make sense of them?
1: <laughs> of course, a big part of how we make sense of such contradictions is through historical narrative, the telling and retelling of a shared past. This happens in textbooks, movies and art, as well as museums. Like the one at Ellis Island. still, as Lee recalled, these efforts can obscure as much as they reveal.
2: Um, as I went through the exhibits on Ellis Island, I realized, you know, that it the museum exhibits do a wonderful job painting a, you know, violent and uh, exclusionary history of our uh, xenophobic past.:
3: After World War I. The fear of outsiders swelled, and the door to America really began to swing shut.
2: But the Johnson that it's treated as over and done with, as unfortunate episodes, year,
3: and made it particularly difficult for Eastern and Southern Europeans to enter.
2: That extremists
3: Congressman Albert Johnson pushed defended forward, the legislation,
2: but that we've long sure since put aside, that we've learned United our lesson, of alien blood. that the there's no way States to go back to that time. Our
3: land. We intend to maintain it. You know, Siva, this story shows how paradoxical it is that we celebrate America as a nation of immigrants. Yet we see anti-immigrant rhetoric openly deployed to energize and polarize citizens, voters, people. In fact, Erica Lee's work argues that nativism and xenophobia are deeply woven into the fabric of American history.
1: In our conversation with Erica, we explored some of that history and its relevance to what we've seen play out lately under President Trump. So, Will, let's pick up that conversation with a question you asked her about the changing nature of xenophobia in America. Um, Take us
3: back in time a little bit. In the early 19th century, as you show, there was an enormous amount of anti-Catholic bigotry in the United States, and, you know, immigrants from Germany or Ireland were often the targets of really outrageous hostility. And then that starts to shift in the late 19th century, and it seems that the new, quote unquote, threat is Chinese immigrants. Now, what is it about Chinese immigrants that Americans found so threatening? And how did this shift occur from uh, uh, concerns about Catholicism to concerns about uh, the the new wave of Chinese immigrants?
2: Xenophobia works in so many um, ingenious ways. It's about demonizing foreigners based on allegedly inferior or dangerous traits and then um, describing an entire group uh, and maligning an entire group based on those traits. And it could be national origin, religion, class, um, gender, sexual orientation, but it's always been consistently um, centered around race. Uh, The big change that happens is the, the ability of white immigrants, immigrants from Europe, to become naturalized citizens and to vote. And with that political power, one becomes, you know, one has a seat at the table, one is able to help shape future policy and to uh, lessen the impact on xenophobia on their community. If you have votes to offer to politicians, and then when you yourself become a politician, you know, it's 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 all about power. Chinese immigrants were the first group of immigrants to come uh, in large numbers, uh, not from Europe. And because the existing laws, based all the way back in the 1790 Naturalization Act, barred non-whites from becoming naturalized uh, citizens, Chinese were automatically going to be second-class citizens along the lines of Native Americans and African Americans. So. It's not only their perceived racial difference, but also how our existing laws and then reaffirmed in the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act uh, barred them from naturalized citizenship and from progressing in the same ways that um, Irish, Italian, um, Jewish, other immigrants from Europe could in terms of climbing that political ladder.
1: Your your work shows us also that by the 1920s, even those groups—Eastern European Jews, um, Irish uh, immigrants, other groups—are suspect. Right? It goes the the suspicion and the concern about the increase in immigration and its effect on American culture and perhaps the economy grows even beyond the perceived threat of immigrants from China. So by the 1920s, we enter a new era of lockdown. Uh, Can you tell us how we got there? What's the intellectual foundation of that movement? Why do we get that anti-immigration movement so strongly in the 1920s?
2: Yeah, immigrants from southern, eastern, central Europe are called racial inferiors. They're still white, but they're not the right kind of white, which is white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. This is all about the ways in which uh, immigration begins to intersect with and drive the science of eugenics. Um, This idea, the scientific racism um, that identified humans into different categories and then classified them based on a a hierarchy of race. So at the bottom was African-Americans, then Native Americans, Asians, Um, And then moving up the ladder, Southern, Eastern, Central Europeans, and then the Nordic race. Those from Northern and Western Europe was considered the superior race, a race of leaders, of creators, of innovators. Um, Southern and Eastern Europeans were also split into different quote-unquote races, the Celtic race, the Mediterranean race, and the idea was again that um, each of these groups had biological tendencies, genetic tendencies, inherited traits and characteristics that lent them to criminality, to deviance, to immorality, um, and that as their numbers were increasing and as the numbers of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants were either staying the same or decreasing. Some of these eugenicists like Madison Grant and Teddy Roosevelt blamed educated white women for not doing their duty and having enough children. The idea of of racial inferiors invading, displacing so-called native whites uh, led to this idea that not only did we need to restrict immigration, but some called for ending immigration altogether.
3: You know, Erica, the University of Virginia in the 1920s was a hotbed, a leading edge, you might say, in the quote-unquote science of eugenics. And, you know, this has always come as a shock to my students when I connect uh, the university that they're studying at with this bogus science of race. And I think what they're surprised by is not just that it happened at the University of Virginia, but that it was so celebrated that UVA bragged about its place in this emerging quote unquote science. And a figure like Madison Grant is pretty interesting because we might think today, well, he must have been some kind of quack on the margins of society. But not at all, right? I mean, he was a grandee of of WASP culture.
2: He was a celebrated uh, scholar. His book, The Passing of the Great Race, went through multiple editions. It was taught in so many different courses, uh, not just history, but also anthropology, zoology, English literature. It was um, almost used as a Bible um, by lawmakers who are debating immigration restrictions in the 1920s. And it was literally called My Bible by Adolf Hitler who praised the United States after um, after we passed the 1921 and especially the 1924 Immigration Acts, which which did institute discriminatory national origins quotas?
3: Let me just follow up with one question on this, which is: It may seem like an an obvious point, but one I th- I think we should stress. It seems to me like in the 1920s, and the 1960s, and and today, what we're what we're seeing here is a fundamental uh, pairing of racial anxieties with the idea of limiting democracy, constructing a democracy that is limited to people of power and a people of a certain racial background. Is that a common thread that's uniting these debates across the century?
2: I think it is. Um, I think it is, although Obviously, there are different contexts. World Wars, (laughs) Uh, 1920s were just coming off of of World War I. Um, In the 1960s, we're in the midst of of a Cold War. We're very concerned about our our international reputation. Um, I think the same could be said in terms of racial anxieties immigration, globalization in the early 21st century. We don't seem to be as concerned about our international reputation right now. I think it's true that certain crises, economic, political, uh, international, um, do allow xenophobia to thrive. But I, I would not want listeners to come away with this idea that xenophobia is only a thing that happens during times of anxiety, Uh, one of the, I think, most surprising elements that I found in writing this book is how xenophobia can flourish during times of peace and war, during times of civil rights and racial strife.
1: You've written that uh, xenophobia is often treated not just by the general public or by public historians, but by academic historians as Either an anomaly or something we have grown out of—that there were embarrassing spasms of racism and xenophobia long ago—but by the time we tr- make the turn towards civil rights in the 1960s, that all sloughs away, uh, and then perhaps it just, you know, reemerges. It it it, it, it erupts. Uh, out of nowhere in 2016. and, And now we're, we're in this new flood of sort of pre 1960s, maybe it's 1920s, you know, xenophobia. So the story I've just told clearly doesn't really match the history of the United States. Could you, could you correct me on that?
2: Right. I mean, you know, so one for listeners who don't know, the 1965 Immigration Act also has an Ellis Island stamp on it. Um, President Lyndon Baines Johnson insisted on signing it on Liberty Island at the foot of the Statue of Liberty. Clearly, the optics were great. You know, it was about reopening up the United States to immigration after forty years of discriminatory national origins uh, quotas. And the speeches are lofty. It's about civil rights. It's about non-discrimination. It's about a recommitment to to immigration. And it's a really important law and it still forms the basis of our um, immigration policy. It's the last time that we had comprehensive immigration reform uh, in the United States. And it does abolish discrimination in the government's handing out of visas. So historians, many of whom you know, had been part of the turn in immigration history to focus on the new groups who were coming in after 1965, those from Latin America, Africa, and Asia, rightly uh, held up this law as a turn towards, obviously, a new America, a better America. But, you know, in that celebration of the law, there were too many, um, too many aspects of the ongoing bitter debate about immigration that was part of the 65 law, as well as the restrictions that remained in place, embedded in that law, that too many historians either glossed over, obscured, or didn't take seriously. And it's really those two, those twin aspects of welcome and restriction built into the 1965 Act, which is part of the civil rights movement that helps explain the conundrum, you know, the the mess, frankly, that we're in today.
1: So this this surprises me a bit, Erica, because my you know my my own family's story, um, in many ways, in this country, starts with the 1965 Act. My parents were married in 1965. I was born in 1966, and then we began a parade of. Uh, of uh, uncles and aunts and cousins coming to this country, sponsored by my father. Uh, chain, and migration. So, yeah, it.
2: chain migration, say chain migration, and yeah,
1: <laughs> it was a great chain for us, right? And yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and in all those cases, like we, you know, the 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 story we tell in our family is that Lyndon Johnson made our lives possible with this 1965 Act, and that we are part of the incredible rush of civil rights legislation, you know, partial beneficiaries of the rush of civil rights legislation in the mid 1960s, along with the Fair Housing Act and the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. Um, And so this this is news to me that there were elements of the Immigration Act in 1965 that perhaps bit back at a notion of a country ready to embrace difference and diversity.
2: Right. Yeah. You know, so your family story echoes the stories of many, many others. Um, The reality behind the intent of the law is that you guys were probably not meant to come. The design of the law, even with its civil rights language, the design of the law was still meant to maintain the current ethnic makeup of the United States in 1965, which was majority Northern and Western European. So when the national origins quotas were abolished, we put in place a different preference system. And the idea was family reunification comes first. And since the majority of people in the United States were of Northern and Western descent, then the idea was their family, also from Northern and Western Europe, would be first in line to come. Um, Those with skills were given a second priority. And it was very clear in the debates that this was a way to make the outcome of the law uh, still consistent with essentially national origins quotas, but in a presumably non-discriminatory way. What happened is that for multiple reasons, including the United States economic assistance to Northern and Western Europe. Europeans didn't feel the need to come, but many in developing economies in Asia, Latin America, and then war-torn countries um, did. And they very astutely used the family preferences to like your family, you know, to build on that chain.
1: So, so that said, you know, June 16th of 2015, Donald Trump rides his escalator down (laughs) in Trump tower and, and some of the first words out of his mouth when he announces he wants to be president were deeply racist and xenophobic. You know, he talked about Mexicans being rapists and that set the tone. So, I know it's difficult and challenging and often unfair to ask a historian to uh, uh, try to make sense of something that happened just four years ago or five years ago. But is this moment when Donald Trump pushes this idea, the set of fears out into full articulation, is that a rupture in the process or the flow of how Americans thought about immigrants? Or was it a continuation and just a, uh, a a nudge that made these passions reemerge?
2: It's absolutely a continuation. I mean, I think when he did ride that escalator down and did make his speech about uh, rapists and criminals, there was a lot of hand wringing, a lot of, did he say that? You know, uh, You know, and a lot of disbelief. But in fact, there's no way that you could have a candidate like Trump um, be so successful in this explicit expression of racism and xenophobia without many, many others before him, including people like Patrick Buchanan, who in the 1990s ran for president and had an America first Uh, you know, rhetoric and whose books have continuously talked about the death of the West um, at the hands of an invasion of of immigrants or Lou Dobbs or any of the mainstream. It's not just extreme, mainstream, you know, media personalities and scholars and politicians laying the, the groundwork. What we're seeing today with immigration during the pandemic is absolutely unprecedented we essentially have our borders completely closed the end of asylum refugee admissions have been suspended immigration has has ground to a halt and one could say these are responsible policies during a time of global pandemic but in fact They are only building upon already robust, sweeping, unprecedented changes that the Trump administration has been making throughout its administration. And yes, you know, part of it began from that elevator ride in 2015, but he's building upon certainly generations of rhetoric and policy and precedent.
3: Erica, before we go, I just wanted. to to get you to reflect a little bit upon the relationship between xenophobia and democracy and illiberalism we like to think of democracy as inclusive but in practice in the u.s it has often uh, been a battle to expand the franchise and our debates about xenophobia and immigration have fueled anxieties about who should be included in our democracy where are we now and where are we going Uh, in this respect. How is the debate about immigration shaping our democracy? And, you know, what are the steps that we would need to take to overcome these obstacles?
2: You know, I started writing this book um, and thinking about the ways in which xenophobia helped to, um, as you say, you know, um, really hurt democracy and My go-to line was, it threatens the very ideals upon which our democracy was founded, um, which remains true. Um, But as I finished the book, I realized, actually politicians have found it expedient to demonize foreigners um, as a way of mobilizing voters, where immigration may be just one item in a larger agenda and then in passing anti-immigrant laws. So the question about, you know, what do we do now? um, I think we really need to ask, is this the kind of democracy that we want? And I hope that when people think about xenophobia that uh, they realize or they consider how it's not just something that happens to immigrants, In that way, it's so easy to to ignore it. You know, you might get excited about it when you read something in the news, but then think about how that doesn't really impact my life if I myself am not an immigrant or my friends or family are no longer immigrants. Uh, But in fact, what xenophobia does is it helps to support, sustain, inspire, division, Uh, It supports white supremacy, white nationalism. It does a disservice to our democracy. The ways in which uh, immigration policy is being made now is by executive order with no congressional oversight. Even though public opinion polls, even during the pandemic show that Americans, a majority of Americans, support immigration, believe that immigrants in general, and especially undocumented immigrants, are doing jobs that Americans do not want. This doesn't seem to be a good reflection of what the people's will is right now.
3: That was Erica Lee, a historian at the University of Minnesota and the author of numerous books, including, most recently, America
1: for Americans, a history of xenophobia in the United States. Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group podcast network. Please visit democracygroup.com to find all of our sister shows. We will be right back after this message from our friends.
0: American politics has reached a moment of existential uncertainty. Beyond the headlines and news alerts are problems bigger than any one administration. Problems that stem from the deep tensions and challenges in America's political institutions. If you agree, then you'll want to check out Politics in Question, hosted by Lee Drutman, Julia Azari, and James Walner, who are three lively experts on American political institutions and reform. On a recent episode, they sat down with Adam Gentelson, author of Killswitch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy, to discuss what extent is the filibuster responsible for the Senate's current dysfunction. To listen, search Politics in Question on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or wherever you get
1: your podcasts. You know, Will, it's really important as we talk about the history of immigration in America, and especially the most recent decades and this rise or re-rise of xenophobia in America, that that the United States is not the only place where this is all playing out. We have seen similar xenophobic movements. We've seen major politicians and parties in countries like France, and the Netherlands, in the United Kingdom. In Italy, we have seen xenophobia take over and twist Hungary to the point where it's walled off from most of the rest of the world in a way that explicitly violates the spirit of the European Union, of which it's a member. We're starting to see it in India, where xenophobia against Muslims, both internal and foreign, is at an all-time high. So it's really important that we look at this within a global context as well and not imagine that the United States of America is alone, although America's story of itself as a nation of immigrants, America's pride in the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island puts our immigration story in stark relief.
3: Yeah, uh, America may be a nation of immigrants, but it's not the only country in the world that has to confront a history of xenophobia. And I was really struck by something Erica said about the way in which xenophobia and American democracy have been wound together. I'd like to think that American democracy is a kind of a, an ideal notion of inclusion and uh, transparency. But the fact of the matter is, as she shows in her book, that the way democracy has been constructed in America has been entirely in sync with xenophobia and racism. And what we're up against in the, in the 21st century is figuring out how to unwind these two strands in order to make democracy more inclusive and more transparent, and in a way to, to figure out how to un, unload ourselves of this burden of, of a couple of hundred years of fear of foreigners.
1: And in many cases, as you can see even today, the major xenophobic movements of the 2020s, like the 1920s, were just as concerned with keeping American democracy white as anything else. In other words, democracy will only work for the majority culture if the Vote is not overwhelmed by these new voters, new potential voters, right? So the idea of birthright citizenship, the idea that people born of immigrants are granted U.S. citizenship immediately, right? Something from that derives from the 14th Amendment to the Constitution uh, is suddenly controversial because of the idea that in a democracy, certain groups might lose power if everybody gets to vote yeah and,
3: and another thing that i was struck by um in her account of this arc of american xenophobia and how it's influenced immigration policy we, we love to point to the 1965 immigration act as a moment of enlightened policy making look we turned our back on the racism of the 1920s but it did create a whole other set of barriers because it was built around skills It was built around, essentially, access to education from key foreign groups that were designated as desirable, people with something to contribute. But that had the effect of making people who were maybe without skills or without wealth or without education suddenly appear to be undesirable. And many of those people were from Central and uh, and South America. So in a way, although race was written out of those laws, it had the effect of accentuating difference all over again.
1: It did. At the same time, as Erica pointed out, it had this unpredicted effect, sort of a, a side effect of changing the nature and origins of the vast of immigration to the United States. So that post-1965, immigrants tended to be from East Asia, Southeast Asia, South Asia, Uh, West Africa, Central or South America in numbers never seen before. And that has certainly changed uh, so much about daily life in America, you know, made it wonderful in so many ways, but generated tremendous anxiety among those who take deep pride in their family's own immigrant experience, perhaps earlier in the 20th century or in the 19th century.
3: What a story! And boy, um, America for Americans is one of those catchphrases that you can use to uh, cast a light on these kind of dark pockets of American history. And um, what we find is uh, is both a uh, fascinating and at times quite alarming.
0: That's it for this rebroadcast of Democracy in Danger. We'll be back as planned next week with activist Serja Popovich and the episode we're preparing about the power of nonviolent activism.
3: We'd love to hear from you in the meantime. Have you been the target of xenophobia? What has been your experience of immigration?
0: What has it looked like and felt like? You can find us on Twitter at
1: DND Podcast or online at theindanger.org. Democracy in Danger is available on Stitcher, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So subscribe to our show and do your part to save democracy. You could tell your friends and your colleagues about what you're hearing and what you're learning from our show. Democracy in Danger is produced by me, Robert Armengol, with help from Jennifer Ludovici. Our interns are Denzel Mitchell and Jane Frankel, Support comes from the University of Virginia's Democracy Initiative and from the College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Deliberative Media Lab. We're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective at WTJU Radio. I'm Siva Vadianathan.
3: And I'm Will Hitchcock. Until next time.